Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And this week marks the slightly late return of our monthly segment, The Inventory, Safe Room's review show, in which we discuss our time with a handful of newly released AAA and indie horror titles that left an impression on us for better or worse. Now, we might be slightly late uh, for the month of April's edition of The Inventory, but after 100 episodes, uh, I think we earned a slight break uh, last week. But, Neil, would you agree that despite our somewhat tardiness, uh, we have plenty of quality titles to chat about this month? We do indeed. A, a nice patch of variety again. You know, April was supposed to be a quieter month. Nope. Um, <laughs> they said the same. May is fairly quiet in some ways, but it has some big, big hairs. So it makes sense that, that they'd be uh, scarpering. Um, but yeah, it, it is a nice and varied month with different, again, with top games, you know, games from smaller developers and yeah, a very interesting bunch to talk about as well. It's funny, whenever we're scheduling for what our, we're going to cover for a given month, it's like you have the heavy hitters or you have sort of the uh, milestone anniversaries that are most notable. And mm-hmm. we're like, oh, OK, I guess we're set. But then inevitably we'll have like a handful of things pop up that yeah. come out of nowhere, seemingly, which has been a nice trend, I think, over the last few months of uh, you know tweaking the show format and whatnot, that mm. we really do get to cover things that – Sometimes we only hear about like a week before we have to record sometimes, but that's kind of speaking to the frequency with which so many of these titles are being released and just the variety of them again. Um, mm. Just that's kind of like the wonder of Twitter. As much of a nightmare as Twitter can be, it's the thing where it's like I learn about new games every day on there seemingly. Um, yes. And yes. some of the games that we're going to cover this month were the result of that. So for the month of April, we'll be covering Meet Your Maker, The Voidness, Bramble Mountain, Rewind or Die. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll come back and chat about Amanda the Adventurer, Varney Lake, and we'll round things out with probably the biggest AAA release of the month horror-wise, that being Dead Island 2. Um, So we will uh, definitely be diving into that in some detail. But let's kick off with uh, Rewind or Die. This was one that, unfortunately, you didn't get a chance to play, but uh, I think you will see that it's well worth your time and something that, again, it's uh, one of those titles that we probably would go back and forth describing as kind of like made in a lab solely based mm-hmm. off of our interests. Um, but Rewind or Die was developed by Comp3 Interactive, and it's published by Torture Star Video. And in Rewind or Die, the player is put into the begrudging shoes of Tony, an employee of the local video store who's called in on his day off. As if dealing with irate movie snob customers wasn't bad enough, a serial killer who's been terrorizing the town has set their hook on Tony, making for a night shift from hell. Now, I didn't just pick this for this month because it's set in the UK at the (laughs) post era of video nasties. Um, But really, this is one of those experiences that I think on paper has been sort of similar to what we've enjoyed in the past. That being that very VHS grainy first person puppet combo esque that, uh, you know, we've chatted about plenty of titles that have done that. But for my money, I think Rewind or Die probably captures a specific era the best. And it's not simply just because of you know, referential stuff to the time period or anything like that. But it does such a great job of just establishing, you know, that video culture life of what it's like to be in a shop, the types of people that you interact with, the -hmm. fact that even if on paper and you're a movie fan or whatever, you're like, oh, it'd be cool to work and be surrounded by movies all day. Like the mundane or the aspects of that type of work that like quickly take up the brunt of it that you are reluctant to do 
um, is made very apparent. And I think a, the best instance of that is early on, you know, you're putting away stuff in the store, you're cleaning up, and then you have to deal with customers periodically as they come in. Yeah. And in a very short amount of time, it kind of introduces the player to the sort of pantheon of regulars that you would have to deal with. You know, there's the, <laughs> the irate Karen, if you will. And then you have like the movie snob who like wants to impress the guy that works behind the counter with his movie knowledge. Um, and it, they do a really good job, I think, with the writing of not allowing it to be like too overbearing, but at the same time, it does a great job again of kind of capturing these different personalities um, that I think anybody that's ever been to a video store has uh, encountered more than once, I think. Um, but then once you kind of move past that, which is a similar structure, I think, to a lot of the types of experiences that have this framework, right? It's kind of allowing the player to fall into this lull, uh, false sense of safety or security, and then the yeah. strangeness starts happening. Um, it does a really good job at building gradually like that. Uh, once the serial killer is introduced, who's named Slaw, who is a pig mask wearing guy that refers to you as like a little piglet and whatnot. Uh, he is aptly, you know, disturbing and creepy and whatnot. But I think what really separates Rewind or Die from other similar types of, you know, puppet combo inspired experiences is that the game opens up into an environment that is much larger than any that I think we've played it in any of these types of experiences. And also there is a sort of like a chase mechanic to it. I don't want to elaborate yeah. too, too much to spoil the surprise, but there is a very open world section where you have to run around and complete these different tasks. And periodically you'll run into the killer and you kind of have to run away from them. And it get breaks out into this really intense chase sequence that does a nice job. I think of, kind of catching you off guard periodically. It breaks up the monotony of like, oh, where's this switch? Um, and I think overall, it does a good enough job of creating its own sort of identity rather than a series of mini moments that we've experienced in any number of, you know, first person retro types of experiences. Um, I'll say also, you know, it, uh, I think, does a good job of capturing those little moments. As I said, you know, it does a good job, I think, of giving you the nasty grunginess that has it also like a manhunt quality to it, which I think you would yeah. really appreciate. Um, but overall, you know, rewind or die found to be a really strong example of a developer tapping into that PSX aesthetic and delivering on that sort of framework in a way that feels justifiable instead of just kind of like riding the coattails of a trend that, you know, we've seen pop off on itchio and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, Great curation, by it seems, of it by, you know, Puppet Combo's torture star video, mm -hmm. you know, to have these developers come in and sort of expand upon the aesthetic and the, the, uh, the concepts that, um, he himself had sort of built up. Um, and I, I'm gutted that I didn't play this for this week because just everything about it is just screams me, 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 you know, yeah. in, in terms <laughs> of it. Like so much about it. I, I like the look of, and, you know, I will still play it, but, you know, to sort of put it into context for why I didn't, it's because, you know, some of the games we covered, I was working on anyway for reviews, articles, whatever. This one was like, well, I have it anyway from being a Patreon. So I'll just play it when it's time, you know, that sort of thing. And which is always good, which is fine. I prefer to play it without the rush in that regard. But yeah, at the same time, a, a tiny bit of me is, they're jealous that I, I didn't get into it already. And, uh, but yeah, it, it's, Looking good, 
Yeah, I, I mean, the whole video store vibe of that era is um, something I'm very fond of as well, because, you know, like for many people of that age and time, it's a formative experience you know, to go in that sort of place and you just kind of dream about the idea, oh, wouldn't, it, wouldn't this be a cool job? Wouldn't it be a, like that? And <laughs> it, but in truth, growing up and doing other jobs in retail later, you're thinking, yeah, it would have been fucking awful. So it's like just uh, <laughs> in so many ways. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, I am very much stoked to um, check it out, especially now if you, you sort of describe more about what it's about as well. It's uh, sounding like a good one. Yeah, that was definitely uh, something that, you know, if it has the either puppet combo or, you know, torture star sort of uh, seal of approval on it, chances are it's going to be something that's going to kind of fit one of those avenues of horror that's right up our lane. But I think overall, I was really surprised at just how polished it was as well. Um, not to say that, you know, those games usually have jank to them or anything like that. But I think when you play so many of these experiences, you start to experience ones where it's like, oh, they've really gone for the look, but don't necessarily have the structural background or framework of them to make it work truly to the way that, you know, the developer would uh, maybe truly want them to, you know? Yeah, that's it. And, you know, I think it's been a good line of stuff coming out in the last few years from torture star in general beyond just puppet combo himself so it makes sense you know it's um a really interesting sort of direction that's being taken you know when we're talking about stuff in the last couple of years we had stuff like blood wash and like the gates of hell you know alongside you know, the console ports of stuff like murder house and stuff like christmas massacre it, it's really branching out and uh, you know strikingly so you know, um to the point where we're going to get stuff later this year, hopefully that is going to be even you know, less, you know, focused on being just pure horror experience, but stuff that's in that sort of grungy exploitation vibe, you know, um, that's, um, which, you know, is another great thing about it as a studio is that in recreating that sort of scuzzy era of, um, you know, the VHS era of horror movies and those sort of extreme movies, if you will, it, it just, endears it to me more because it has that fulci like ability to just sort of jump genres and go no but we're still very much a fulci joint kind of thing you know i always remember it with him as a director you know he did westerns he did you know cop thrillers and you know full-on horror movies and they all had the unique fulci thing of like splatter and silliness and just weird oddball stuff and i love that and this has pretty much become like the video game studio that, that, that does that, you know, or publisher in fact. So yeah, I, I'm very pleased that we're getting this sort of um, evolution of it, if you will. And to piggyback and finish with that point that you just made, this feels like the biggest departure from a gameplay style that we've been sort of conditioned to expect from these types of experiences. Um, and I think that that allows this to not only capitalize on that setting and whatnot, but it also has, you know, a few uh, tweaks to the formula, if you will. And I think by this point are more than welcome. And, you know, you hope to see more of that kind of deviation in the future, just to allow it to, you know, grow and evolve, if you will, uh, the sort of expectations of those PSX style experiences and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. But uh, you are going to now tell us about Meet Your Maker, a game that I couldn't uh, connect to servers for whatever reason. So every okay. time I would try to log on, it would say server is not available and this and that. 
um, which was a bummer because this one seemed like it had a lot of promise. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of weird now because like, it feels like forever ago, I, co- I started playing it and covering it because you know, it came out at the beginning of the month and mm. I had it pre-release. But yeah, so the big thing to take away here is that, you know, it's the next game from Behavior Interactive, you know, the makers of Dead by Daylight. And as a game and a concept it is miles ahead of that, you know, mm. game, you know, which is, you know, for all intents and purposes, is a very simple game where, that doesn't like to change too much beyond tweaking. And Christ, <laughs> people bitch enough about that game when it, the tiniest things change. <laughs> so having something as free form as this, it, it just does feel like a release for the studio where they can just sort of go, you know what, fuck it, we want to do what we want to do. And, you know, but it still has you know, horror-esque elements. Um, there's very, um, hardware vibe. I don't know if you know that film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, about it. Yeah. It's, and I like that about it. So the premise of it is the world has ended effectively, but apart from these few pockets of what's left out there and you're all after this secret source, so to speak, that is out there in different places in the desert and the wastelands. So to you have your own that you've got to sort of produce and keep getting produced, um, but you need to protect it. So the way you protect it is to build a trap filled place around it. And basically the idea is to kill as many people trying to get to it as possible to sort of help cultivate what you're doing and keep building these things up. And the thing is, every other place you go to to do same and go and steal other people's stuff is another player's base you know so you have this dangerous random element of what they will do and how they will do it now the tools are really simple to use you know to create your um base and the best thing i found about this game is that I won, I did worry at first that it was going to be a case of one side of the game would be more fun than the other. Like going into people's like, uh, places and it, trying to figure them out would be it. You know, that maybe creating stuff would just be for the people who are, you know, on big brain energy and just go, yeah, I'm going to create fucking ma- the Mario Maker death machine <laughs> of Meet Your Maker levels. Or like in the Phantom Pain when you're like beefing up your base and building securities yes. and you get attacked every time you go out. Like, that would be uh, a, an apt example, I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this does in a lot of ways feel like the most natural evolution of what the Phantom Pain did mm. here in that regard. Um, I think I likened it to Quake meets Mario Maker as well, you know, because it has that Quake look to it as well as being, you know, very much custom levels that you're trying to prove other people to. Um, they don't last for long. You know, the more you upgrade them, the shorter their lifespan is. And then they're basically fucked after that. And you've got to try and find another source or pay like big prices to, um, get it back online. But all the while you're upgrading different things, you're getting different things better because of that. If you build a really good base. So you, you, it happens in real time, of course. So you'll come back a few hours after like setting your base up. And while it's active that time. Yeah, people will go into it, whatever, and it will be difficulty based depending on how big your base is, how well you've built it out. So, you know, a small base with a few things will just be the easiest level. And as you go and as you build it up, it will become more extreme. Um, 
and that will also cultivate more points and more rewards for you when you do right. And so there's stuff like you get to see how people did on your level. You know, you can get literal replays of how they went up against your level and you know, see where they failed, how they failed. Um, you can return to your base to see the points where they were, you collect all the stuff they left behind uh, to keep you know, sort of cultivating your own stuff. I mean, you're you're doing all this to basically feed this big brain fetus thing in a tube and make it like the best one out there. Yeah, and it was such a really a good hook I found you know, in that first week, especially where it was just I'm doing really well at this. So I'm figuring this out, and once you go doing other people's levels, you start to see things. You go, oh yeah, I could do this. I could. You know, mm-hmm. so you start to appreciate what people do with their levels. Sure. You know, and you don't even have to compliment what they're doing in a way you would normally do in that sort of like online environment. The compliment is you died, you know, or you failed or how many times, <laughs> because every time you fail is just racking up for them. I mean, you don't get punished for it. You can try as many times as you want. But the thing that will get is that their base will basically become more famous, better. Because you've done so many attempts mm-hmm. at it. So it's a nice balance it seeks out. And it's just the whole setup of this game is just really fascinating. And it just feels miles away from, you know, what they did with Dead by Daylight, which I think, you know, they've kind of been shackled by a bit. And this does feel very freeing. It's almost a shame that it feels like it's gone a bit quiet already, you know, for it, which is half of the course in some ways. But it's just so fun you know you know for that kind of game and that kind of experience sure it hits a lot of the beats i like anyway you know and the shooting is very limited stuff you know it's like you have a certain amount of shots and everything's very much instant death if something touches you you're dead you're not really going to get a second chance like that with so it's it's brutal to the extreme and it has that quality about it that's funny, you know, you know, in games where you just the most brutal and ridiculous way to die, it just will make you laugh rather than be frustrated <laughs> by it. And you kind of applaud the mad genius that people can come up with. And then to do that to other people as well, it's just superb. So yeah, it's been great fun. You know, again, one of those regrets I've had is that with everything else to do after that, getting to play it less and less uh, as the weeks have gone on, but it's, really fun time i guess my biggest uh question was how does it handle in real time but you pretty much just answered that right because the base building aspect uh sounds really awesome i think it kind of captures that competitive side of like a tower defense in a way that you know the more tools you get to unlock you can make these more complex structures and everything along those lines um to hear that the real-time gameplay is like pretty enjoyable at the same time but it's more almost like a scouting trip, right? And I think mm. that's a really interesting aspect about how you can start to steal stylistic design choices that they made for their base, or it could just be, you know, certain defenses and whatnot. Um, in terms of like it, the player base maybe dying off or maybe the conversation around it not being as loud as you would want it to be, I'm pretty sure it's coming to PS Plus either. It was. It, this, it, it, or it already was, okay. Yeah, yeah, it launched on PS Plus. So that, that was a, a boon for it. I think, I think it'll do all right. Sure. I just think, you know, we get these metrics in games. People t- say the biggest games in the world are fucking dead. So, mm-hmm. you know, still <laughs> right, to this yeah. day, you know, Fortnite's still dead, guys, you know, apparently. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> they were saying about Counter-Stroke years. <laughs> it's like, 
Uh, yeah, so yeah, it's one of those things that happens with anything that's online based, you know. But the fact is, it's freeing, you know, in the way it's set up. It isn't going to have to be all about being online, you don't because you don't interact with anyone really. You are basically just saying, "Oh, this level looks interesting. I'll give it a go." But you never know what you're going to get till you get in there. That's the beauty of it, you know. They could. They can set up like surprise things, hidden things like that. The amount of times I've carefully gone through a level, taking out every trap, spotting everything, even anticipating that the second that you get the material you need to grab in the middle, that there's going to be a whole bunch of traps that go on, that come up on the reset. Because when you grab the stuff you're supposed to come in for, there is like a second wave of things that can be set up. And then you'll step one step too far and forget that you can have like trick, you know, blocks that basically you fall through the floor to like corrosive acid and stuff like that, or just get stabbed to death by a bunch of blades. And it just, it's, and it is just so morbidly hilarious when it happens, but it, and you just feel like a dupe for it. I mean, there's ways as well to sort of counteract it by developing tools and researching certain areas so you can have stuff that gives you one more chance you know you can respawn but you have to be careful when you do it because if you do it before the reset it will kill you it will take that out and you won't have your reset option um and then you have you have a grappling hook throughout as well so you can sort of like pull yourself through certain trap filled bits but you just never know what you're going to get in a lot of cases. And it, some of them are just like maddeningly like crazy. And when you get through them, it's just so, so satisfying. Is there a time limit for exploring or going on a raid? No, no, no. It's like uh, I said, your base has a life expectancy. You know, like I said, the, the more you build it up, the better you cultivate it, the, be- the higher you prestige it, if you will, the shorter its lifespan. And then after that, you basically run it its course. Um, so, but if you keep it low and fairly humble, you can keep it running for longer and you can reactivate it for more times for easier. But, um, yeah, it works out, you know. Um, but yeah, in, when you go into someone's base, you've got all the time you need. It's like until the stuff is activated, you don't have a problem with it at all. Well, as somebody that spent an inordinate amount of time with Far Cry map, uh, map editors and whatnot back in the day, it's the type of thing where uh, it's like right up my alley. And the multiplayer mm. component, I mean, that just sounds like it's a dream in terms of working with certain variables from other games that we've played where it's got this sort of give and take of going on raids to learn things and get resources. But at the same time, you know, even if in defeat, you are sort of gaining an experience uh, or experience in terms of like, oh, well, maybe if I you know, throw the player that's going to raid my base next, this curveball or that curveball, and that's a fun sort of, give and take. And I could see communities popping up around this, you know, inevitably once uh, maybe, I don't know, it's uh, polished up or tweaked a little bit more, this or that. Uh, people that pop up and they start doing like challenge raids and things like that or start giving people, you know, oh, try doing it in this amount of time or this or that. Like there's yeah. a lot of variables here, I think, that a community that is really into those, you know, hardcore map design, game mode design type things would, uh, you know, really uh, form an audience around this that could go on for a while. Yeah, uh, you know, most of all, as good as all that stuff is, I just like the aesthetic of it so much. Mm. Having that sort of grungy Quake, you know, Quake 2 sort of esque vibes to it, yeah. it really does wonders for me. 
as a thing. It just feels like some sort of Quake spin-off in so many ways, and uh, I'm happy about that. So yeah, that alone was like a really striking thing for me, and just how everything is just like a bit weird and fucked up in this world, and it looks cool <laughs> because of it. Yeah, it's genuinely think something I'm quite fond of, you know, which is something I, I honestly could not say about Dead by Daylight. I've played a lot of that and still don't see why I have in some ways because yeah. <laughs> I mean you could probably put the same complaint to this game that oh, you know, you only really have one mode effectively that you are or two, I suppose, you're raiding or making and that's it. But Dead by Daylight has been the same thing for fucking years and it's still doing well. So yeah, it doesn't really matter you know, if you do the one thing sure. well enough that people care to do it. So yeah, but yeah, that's enough on that. So. All right. Well, I want to chat about uh, The Voidness, which the is a Voidness. game that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. And this was developed and published by Steel Krill Studio. That is remarkably run by a solo developer named Ryan Portelli, uh, who was kind enough to supply me with the code. Thank you, Ryan. I very much appreciate that. Um, but again, much like Rewind or Die, this is a game that was made in a lab primarily for you and I, Neil. Um, mm. The Voidness is one of those games that takes sci-fi psychological horror and blends it with cosmic horror elements, and it incorporates LiDAR map tech which is, you know, very much feels like it's influenced from the DNA of Scanner Sombra, uh, which yeah. I'll detail in a little bit uh, later. But in this game, you play as Francesca Lee, a scientist set to, sent to a remote research base with her team to uncover the mysteries of the void, a place that is of nothing but darkness and gloom. Um, and however, Francesca awakens after an accident to her crew missing and a newfound determination to return to Earth, but it seems there's something within the void more than just mysteries. So like I said, this feels very much like it's built from a framework of something like a scanner Sombra. It's very mm. atmospheric, stellar sound design. The quite literally the mapping of the void is gorgeous, right? And for yeah. people that don't know the base of these LIDAR tech based games is that you emerge into a room of complete darkness. You have this mapping technology that basically fires colors from a scanner and you paint the environment with various colors that helps you to pick out, you know, the geography of a location and to find items within it. Um, so as I said, gorgeously, you know, uh, rendered and whatnot in that world. And I would say giving this game a little bit more than just that is that the game begins in a fully rendered in unity, uh, space station for you to explore. So it's not, primarily, or I should say, it's not wholly set in the darkness of, you know, the LIDAR world of the void. Um, it is a really interesting sort of paralleling of experiences in that the game begins with you exploring the space station, you're going, you know, through an environment, and you're doing sort of what you would imagine you would be in a first person uh, horror game, you're going to go investigate lockers, you're going to read different data pads and whatnot to give you a background of what's been happening. And then the LIDAR side of things come into play when it's time for you to explore the void. And, you know, I really liked seeing, as I said earlier, like incredibly impressive. This is made by one person uh, based on the production value of the opening moments alone, but seeing somebody that is utilizing both the darkness of the void and the LIDAR side of things, but then also delivering these fully rendered, fully detailed environments that are telling their own stories, 
that are blending mechanics that can work in the LIDAR world and others that cannot. Um, so it is this type of experience that for as much as I enjoyed something like Scanner Sombra, it feels like there's only one way to describe that experience. And that mm. is mapping the world is about 85% of it. And the other side of it is kind of like the scare aspect or this or that. In this game, it's a little more complex than that. So you have some gameplay mechanics that are along the lines of like a survival horror game. You have stamina, you have health, you have an inventory, you have a whistle mechanic that you can periodically whistle to distract enemies. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. Um, but I think ultimately, this feels like a more full-fledged experience that is allowing a developer to not only showcase a multitude of their talents, whether that be in game development or in storytelling. But I think for me personally, it also picks up some of the slack that something like Scanner Sombra didn't necessarily capitalize on mm. in that that game did tell a story and did tell a narrative, but it was almost very fleeting, I think, in terms of like it was very bare bones and it wasn't as often as I would have liked. With Scanner Sombra, right, or excuse me, from uh, The Voidness, right from the beginning, this is fully voiced VO for the protagonist who is commenting on, you know, their current predicament, but also, you know, some of their subconscious. And at the same time, you're learning more about the world, the protagonist, and those that you're searching for right out of the gate. So it's much more narrative driven. And it's also much more personable uh, mm -hmm. in terms of like, oh, it's about the individual and learning more about them. Whereas in Scan or Sombra, it felt more like this is this overarching story that you have these milestones, but it's not really updating you on the individual in the moment, which makes sense for that type of story. But I think for me, the voidness delivers on a narrative front where I wanted Scanner Somber to. Um, mm. In terms of how it evolves with like the LiDAR tech, I think that while mapping the environment, like I said, is very similar to something like Scanner Sombra, this feels even more detailed in that you have to, you know, collect items to solve these very basic puzzles, which mostly just amount to opening doors. So you have to find a valve or something like that to open it. But items that you can interact with in the environment scan a specific color. Enemies scan a specific color. Um, hazards within the environment, like if you find glass and you step on it, you can alert an enemy that has a certain color. So it feels a little more technically impressive in the sense that mm. you're not just mapping environments, but you have to analyze your environments and pick out things that you can interact with or things that you quite literally have to avoid. Otherwise you can die. Um, yeah. So the enemies come into play periodically where you can scan them and you see this sort of uh, ghostly figure that will appear yeah. in the void. And it goes on this sort of path that it patrols and it's not necessarily difficult to avoid them, but I will say there's a couple of moments that are scripted, but they are quite intense because you have to utilize basically like a table or a nook in an environment to hide under. Yeah. But what is actually like pretty intense, the couple of times that it happened was you have to regulate your breathing because mm. when I was playing with headphones, you get this notification that says, oh, control your breathing because if you breathe too loudly in the microphone, it alerts the enemy and they'll <laughs> grab you, which you know, it sounds kind of like a little gimmicky gameplay thing, but it actually was very intense and it added an extra layer of unease to an experience, to a encounter that more or less is just like avoid the patrol path that they're on. And, you know, the patrol path doesn't change that much, but 
it added an extra element to that where I was just like all of a sudden regulating my breathing, which is, you know, not something you ever have to do mostly in games. <laughs> um, but I think also, and I can't talk about it cause it's, a, it would be considered a spoiler, but I think that in the second half of this game, it has a environment that you explore that is very specific to the protagonist and what they've been dealing with before this event with the void occurred and, yeah. you know, periodically afterwards. And the way that you explore the environment and the significance of the environment and how it really is the best example of not only cosmic horror, but also psychological horror. I mean, it's probably one of the best sections of any game I've played so far this year in terms of it just being this wonderful combination of all of those elements. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I think it was fairly short. It took me about two hours to play, which is not a knock. It's the type of thing where you get to the end of an experience and you're like, yeah, that felt like the perfect uh, length for something. Yeah. Wasn't terribly challenging or anything like that. Like I said, the enemies are pretty easy to avoid, but I'm just so enamored with their ability to take that LIDAR tech, but then really you know, push that sort of approach to game design forwards in the sense that it takes not only those types of environments, but more traditional sort of survival horror environments that you explore and makes for an experience that I had a great deal of fun with. And it makes me want to, you know, see more of that world. It's, I believe it's in um, early access on steam. Yeah. Um, but I only encountered one crash in my two hours. Um, it was very stable, at least the way build that I played. Um, but it's a, the thing where it's like, I would love to return to this world at some yeah. point. Cause it is, whew, it is something that I think you would get on very well with. Yeah. And I think on a low key sort of way that, you know, while we're sort of referencing these sort of LIDAR games, I think you know, like LIDAR XE and, um, Scanner Sombra, I think probably the most influential use of it at the minute is phasmophobia which has the dot system which is very similar if you remember uh, the paranormal paranormal activity film where they use the fucking xbox connect oh yeah for, yeah. for a, a genuinely good bit of uh, that film you know with the dot with the dot matrix stuff it's basically like a handheld version of that that they the new i think the latest update allows it to sort of go level to level so you could do handheld room 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 like that and i think that's helped push that into the mainstream as an idea as a thing that's why we're getting more of these sort of lidar games as well uh but also i just think a, a, a reappraisal of what scanner sombra did really well has helped so that, that's really good but yeah this is a developer that has made you know a backrooms game that is well received you know which is fucking hard enough you know consider there's so many of them you know and made um trenches that world war one game uh horror game that's um we didn't end up getting to cover on here, but we, we did, I did play. That was quite fun and fun, yeah, for World War One. Um, but yeah, it, it's clear a development team. You know, even though it's one person that's you know, developer and publisher, so they've got something going on here. You know, and it's looking like it's working out for them. You know, so this is a game I've not played, as I said, but I have bought. You know, as you were very quick to tell me how good it was. So I was like, well, it's good. And if Jay likes it and it's a LiDAR style game, brilliant. Yes, I, I am fully into that. So hopefully as we get further in the year, you will hear my thoughts on it one way or the other. So, And it made me think that maybe we need to have a mini category to either our 
uh, halfway point of the year or in our, you know, inevitable games of the year coverage, having like favorite horror moment in a game, right? I think a lot of the time you and I try to stay away from like, oh, this is the scariest part of a game. But (laughs) when you have an experience or a chapter or a segment in a game, much like I found this portion that I have been rambling about, uh, how well it was done and executed. It's the type of thing where it's like, I would love a chance to talk about it in detail more with you, or even just, you know, by the end of the year, getting a chance to kind of talk about it in a little more depth when we're a little farther from the release, because it is such a stellar blending, I think, again, of how this game pushes that LiDAR tech experience in horror games forwards while, you know, blending other genre influences in these things. But yeah. Voidness was uh, definitely one not to be missed this month. Before we take a break, I think you're going to tell me all about Bramble the Mountain King, which was one I was unfortunately not able to uh, get my hands on. Yes, uh, this is by Dimfrost Studios, and you've probably seen it uh, uh, mentioned um, a few times on TikTok, things like that. It's a very particular scene in this game, kept coming up in like video clips. I'm sure you've seen it's based on like Nordic fairy tales, folk tales, things like that. Um, with that dark edge rather than the sort of sanitized version of those things that we've got in more recent you know, decades, I suppose. Um, so instantly that was like, Oh, that's cool. But I was not prepared for how dark this game ends up actually being. I, I must say I was getting through the beginning of it thinking, okay, this could be a dark hearted thing. That's not really that dark. So, um, so yeah, a couple of children, you know, the, the older sibling, the sister likes to sneak out into the forest at night, even though, you know, their mother warns them that it's a bad idea and you know, all the threats of the forest. And on one night she decides to do this and her little brother, Ole, decides to follow her, him, sorry. They get out there. They have some fun with some gnomes, you know, really adorable little gnomes, like, <laughs> like they're with the pointy hats and, they're all squeaky and everything like that. But it starts going south, you know, that, and, you know, they are miniaturized during this adventure somehow, you know, where they are like the size of these little creatures in the forest. And a troll captures Ole's sister. And that's where the adventure begins. Ole then decides to go and um, find her even though he's still, you know, shrunk in size and meets on all the dangers of the forest that he personally has never encountered before. Um, so if you want obvious comparison points here, you're thinking Little Nightmares, uh, Black the Fall, Deadlight, and especially Playdead's Limbo and Inside, you know, you know, child in a very bleak world, bleak things happen. Now, yeah, when I say bleak things, I mean... There are sections where Ole can be like caught by certain things and and it's grim. It's brutal. There's one where with the troll itself, where if you are caught, it literally just grabs him by his head and just squishes it like that. Sound effect and all, you know, (laughs) like that. It it isn't unrelenting and that. And I I was taken aback by that. I, I found it really just refreshing sounds really sick i know but <laughs> i like... laughed when you described a child's head being squished so, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah this whole thing's narrated in a very storybook way you know presented in a very storybook way the environments look very realistic you know just and i think that helps and it's all very fixed perspective for most of the time 
Um, but yeah, it does very much have a play dead vibe in terms of how it works, you know, puzzles, blah, 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 get past this. Um, little backstories for the enemies you face, which are based on folklore. And that's really interesting. I really love the stuff they do with that. And yeah, the, like I said, the darkness goes beyond just like what might happen to Ole. I mean, there's a section with a, a witch, um, that does some the things that make The Witch, uh, Robert Eggers' film, seem quite tame by comparison in the places that went. Um, so it was, uh, that was interesting. So this, throughout, kept me interested in the game. But as a game, fucking hell, sometimes it it really did just make me want to just stop. Because the fixed camera angles... They're all well and good. They're great for just setting up great shots. And there are some fantastic shots that are made because of that, you know, including the ones you've seen on TikTok of you know, that creature just coming towards you, dragging itself through the mud as you're trying to desperately escape. But it leads to a lot of occasions where you aren't able to judge distance, angles, anything like that, and you just fail constantly. And then there are other moments where everything's very ambiguous and you are expected to fail to get through, which I don't think really works with the way they're doing it in the narrative. Now, the problem with it being so much like games of the ilk that Play Dead made means that, fairly or unfairly, that's the comparison you're going to make. And while I think it does a fantastic job in being really dark and really compelling as a story... It's missed that part. They did. I mean, we kind of felt similar, didn't we, last year with Somerville? Yes. By some of the, the ex-play that does where, you know, it had some of the elements right, but as a game, it kind of didn't, it was missing something. And this really does. And I think technically it's a bit of a mess, you know, which is a shame because it looks so good. The story is so good. You know, every, the set pieces of it are really just striking as hell. And, it's the most conflicted I've felt about a game you know, uh, this year, I think, where I really, really want to love it. But there's so much about it where I'm just thinking, why? You know, what, why did, what, why did you go this and why did you do it this way? And just failing again and again just felt annoying, you know, and yeah, I, it, it's not even just that. I think it's the fact that as a game, with what it does, it does a really simple version of what those better examples do, you know, in terms of puzzles and things, you know, like some of them, the occasional smart puzzle here, but most of them tend to be bare bones, basic stuff. Um, you're wandering from point A to B, nothing's really happening most of the time. Then a puzzle comes up or you have to jump and guess like which direction to jump in really quickly. And it's not clear visibility wise. It's just annoying. You know, it just, yeah. Every time you just think you've got what the game's doing right and you're just there and you're thinking, if this just goes on a good run for the next 10 minutes, it's really just pushing this game on and making it great. And it just constantly drops the ball, unfortunately. But it's still fun. It's still enjoyable. It's still entertaining, still compelling. It's just, you have to take that into account. You really, really do. Because I'll I say, think- I'll say this. It sounds like. I would have the same issue with this game that I had with Somerville in the sense that kind of like you said, those fixed ha- camera angles actually make the player have to work harder. 
rather than, you know, smarter because they limit your distance, your ability to view the distance for clearing environments and making jumps and these things. However, from everything you've said, I think I would get on with this better than I did uh, Somerville because I'm more interested in the Norse dark mythology horror aspect of it. Yeah. Whereas with something like Somerville, I was like, yeah, it's kind of cool. You get these weird aliens and whatnot, mm. but I'm far more interested in the aesthetic and the world of Bramble, the Mountain King, compared to something like Somerville. So I might put up with a little bit more in the case yeah. of Bramble um, and excuse some aspects of that just so that I can get to those elements that I think are so strong. Because if anything, it almost also sounds like a darker version of um, like Brothers almost, you know, not the yeah. co-op style of play, but more so just the world building and the sort of fantasy elements. And I just think that overall – from what I've seen of it, um, I want to be in that world. And I think that I'm more forgiving if it's a world that I want to occupy, even mm. if I have to, you know, be in a space that's causing me a little more frustration than uh, perhaps it should. Yeah. And I think it'd be a lot different for people. Now it's out in the wild, you know, and I'm sure there'll be things, guide solutions to some of the more obnoxious parts of the game, but which I think it will take the edge off slightly. But I think if you can persevere through that, it is really worth it as a story because I, I was really into it in that regard and what it does. And I still think that that doesn't work as well in any other form. It, you know, as a video game, that is where it is successful. It's just a shame that, you know, on the bare bones, basic things of making it a video game don't really gel with it. And you can kind of see why so many small studios end up going with the more first-person, risk-free sort of environment in terms of trying to tell a story. Because if you fail at the, at the gameplay side of it when you're doing that, it, you're done for. It, it just it will mess everything up. You only have to remember how damaging it was for everybody's gone to the rapture. Because the run button was basically a slow jog <laughs> at best, you know, like that. It was and a hobble. The, and that people in review time didn't even get to figure it out because there was no sort of impetus or no showing of why and how you do it. So that game, a uh, wonderful game as it is, ended up hobbled by that, literally. So it, these are the small things. That change things, you know. There, there are many examples in the horror genre, especially actually, that just have these little elements that they, they shot for the moon a bit with trying to make it two things and kind of failed on one side. But um, I always add the caveat that you know some of this could be improved with just tweaks and fixes, but some of it would take fundamental changes to the way game plays, and I don't think you'd want that. I think you have to respect that the game went in the direction it did. And while it doesn't always work, I think it was the right decision for the kind of game they were making. It's just um, lessons, I suppose, to be learned for the next game for Dim Frost. How long did it take for you to uh, complete? <sighs> it's about five hours or something. Oh, okay. So it's, not, it's, not yeah, it's not a long, not a long one, but um, yeah, it, it's a good pace for the story. It sure. goes good places. Uh, like I said, it's just, it will constantly surprise you with how dark it can be. Yeah. You know, like, because there are moments of it that are just pure fairy tale beauty, mm. you know, in between that just kind of catch you off guard. 
you know, that you early on you go for this village of these gnomes and it's all very cute and adorable. You know, if you ever played the game Unravel, you know, which is also, you know, Scandinavian sort of set game, you know, and the environments are so familiar to that. And then just seeing, I had to bring up this one section, right? Is this section where you are having to sift through this offflow from what is a butcher's place, yeah, and it's basically all just offal and stuff and just meat in mixed in with the water. So it's like this meaty slurry stuff, and you're basically trying to get through it. And there's something in the water that you can't see oh, that geez. is like trying to chase you, like that, and you have to get between. And part way through it, there's a cage with a gnome in it. Now and. The clear idea is that you're supposed to use it to, as a platform mm. to get where you want to go. The funny thing about it is you don't need it. Hmm. But in your mind, you've already made the decision. Sure. You've done it. <laughs> and then you realize, shit, I didn't need to do that. I just fucking killed one of those just adorable gnomes. Drowned for nothing. an adorable <laughs> so, gnome. <laughs> yeah, and got it eaten by whatever the fuck is in there. It's like... That sounds like a more fucked up version of like the trash compactor from Star Wars or something. Yeah, it just, and it's full of moments like that where you're just like, yeah, I'm not sure it'll go that far. And oh, okay, it did. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that is something to be applauded because it's never done with like a look how shocking we are sort of thing. It's sure. done in a sense of, you know, casual. And that, that's kind of frightening, you know, and in, in its own way. Does that moment, ever inform the player of future moments where they might have to re-examine an environment or something like that? Or is that sort of just like a one-off? I'm just curious if like that moment serves as a teaching moment for the player rather than, you know, putting a big tutorial or a big exclamation mark over it. Like, oh, be careful how you interact with environments. There's more solutions than just the most obvious one. Sometimes, or, yes. Sometimes, okay. Yeah, but not most of the time. It's very much one way, and that's it. Which is one of the frustrating areas, you know, because yeah, you, there's some of them very much need one solution, and you're just there trying to figure out what the fuck it is. Uh, there's one section like that where you are just having to figure out from the beginning, and if you don't figure it out within two seconds, you, you're gonna be dead. <laughs> each time and then True. when you do figure it out the, the camera angle problem then pre presents itself in the way you're supposed to interact with certain elements of the environment because you're supposed to it's a timing exercise effectively like avoid the thing hide behind the thing until that thing has passed go to the next thing activate that to get to the next bit but to activate that thing you have to be pointing directly at it and the camera angle doesn't allow that so you're fiddling around where you're knowing you're wasting seconds and it, uh, it it just, it was the lowest point, I think, for me in that game where it just like, like, this is so badly explained, you know, and, and so I'm not, I'm not asking for like controls up on the screen or any of that shit. I'm literally just asking for better visual cues because when the game does it right, it's great at it, but there's so many instances where you just do not get those cues. Yeah, that's always sort of like, well, I hesitate to say the kiss of death for some of those experiences just based off of my time with Somerville, because that was why that game I was so burnt out on was because it lacked so many of those cues, but also a lack of camera handling with these wide out shots of an environment. And then it's like, mm. oh, you need to access this one specific thing in this corner. But it's like, how the fuck would I see that if I can't zoom in on it, right? Yeah. Um, but again, like from what you've said largely about 
uh, Bramble the Mountain King. I think that that world and that story and that sort of bleakness playing against the fantasy elements, I think is like, it sounds like it was made just for me because that's sort of the vibe that I'm looking for, for uh, my fantasy. I'm not a huge fantasy guy, but I appreciate mythology that's very dark. And so I think in that regard, uh, that would probably resonate with me more than something like a Somerville. Exactly. You know, that's why I've talked about it for as long as I have. Because uh, (laughs) It's a good indication. Exactly. I care about what it does. And, you know, and that's what makes me more frustrated than when it does things wrong. So, you know, it, it's the most interesting title this month in that regard because it could have been so much more, but at the same time, would it have been if you'd changed anything? So, yeah, I always find those kind of games fascinating. It's a difficult balance, but you've more than convinced me to check it out. Um, but we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll dive into... Amanda the Adventurer, Varney Lake, and finally, Neil will get to uh, tell me all about why I should be shamed for missing out on yet another <laughs> another first-person zombie game, that being Dead Island 2. But uh, more on that in a moment. And we are back from our break, and we are going to dive right into Amanda the Adventurer. This is a title, admittedly. Uh, I was completely unaware of until uh, <laughs> the fine folks at Dread XP dropped a code in my box for this, but it was the type of game that I think very quickly sort of um, informs the, the player why this is like a really smart blending, I think, of something that doesn't seem as if it's traditional horror, but then, you know, is able to incorporate that horror in a way that uh, gradually builds and you know, as I said, this is published by Dread XP, who supplied us with codes for it, and it's also developed by Mangled Maw Games. Um, so, in Amanda the Adventurer is a puzzle game with a sinister edge to it, as the player finds themselves in the attic of a home they've suddenly inherited. In addition to various toys and items scattered in the attic, there's a TV with various tapes of a children's TV show called Amanda the Adventurer. Amanda and her pal Wooly the Sheep are the seemingly innocuous presenters of a children's educational show but it becomes quickly apparent that there's more to the contents of the tapes and Amanda and Wooly himself than the players really realizes uh, first upon encountering them. So this game initially struck me because it made me remember of puzzle PC games for kids from like the early mm-hmm. 2000s because of the uh, mouse clicker. It's like an arrow with a face on it and yeah. it kind of has this cartoon sort of bubbling along the edges of it, which made me think of um, now, of course, I'm forgetting it. There was like uh, a fox spy game from back in the day. There was like a fish uh, educational game back in the day that like my parents uh, thought that they could like blend education and video games uh, to fool me into learning on my you know off days from school and whatnot. But what I really liked about this game was that first and foremost, it sort of reminded me of Gone Home in that mm. it puts you in this environment that feels very lived in in exploring the different types of items that you see lying around. It's almost like you can see the history of the home and the occupants because you go through and you see, you know, a grandfather clock, you see a tool, you see a toolbox and whatnot. And then you start to see like kitty Fisher price toys and these different things. And it's like, Oh, you can almost like see the people aging throughout this house in a way. And then of course you discover the TV with the VHS tapes and whatnot. And what I loved about that sort of format was that rather than toss the player into the deep end and be like, hey, there's all these puzzles, you decide what you're going to solve first or this and that. 
it feels like the puzzles are guided in a way that works within the confines of the attic itself, right? So each mm. of the tapes is going to have a subsequent puzzle that's connected to it, and it presents itself like it's a just a children's educational show. So the first tape that you encounter is about like cooking a pie, right? And so you get to watch Amanda and Wooly, who in the first tape, you know, there's not much strange there, but somebody will say a word or they'll respond and their tone will be a bit harsh for harsher than what it should be. And then you kind of just like write that off and you go to actually like making the pie yourself, which once the video ends, you turn around and the Fisher Price uh, cooking set that was in the corner is now on a table behind you. And you yourself have to go through the acts of cooking the pie. And at first I was kind of like, uh, okay, like how fucking easy is this? But then like realizing, <laughs> oh, I zoned out during that tape or I wasn't paying attention as closely as I should have. So I went back and rewatched it. I started to piece together the different ingredients and in the order that you're supposed to mm. and, you know, made the pie, set the temperature for the right amount and the time and whatnot. And then you basically unlock the next tape. And the game does a really good job of, you know, layering clues within the context of this very surreal sort of children's show that, yeah. you know, I'm not going to say this is the hardest puzzle game I've ever played, but there are definitely a couple of puzzles where I went back and rewatched the tapes once or twice because I wasn't paying attention to the background of environment. Yeah, I mean, I was writing was notes. said at one point. Yeah, I was writing notes you know, at one point. Well, me and my kids were with me when I was playing it. We were just there, just like, that's important, that's important. And because of that sort of edutainment vibe it's got going, it's designed for you to pick up those things as a child, I think, because they were picking that up constantly. They, they were constantly going, that number means something, this means something, that means something like that. It's like, great, they get it, perfect. This makes these. But yeah, and then it was just fun to sort of figure that out, isn't it? Sorry, I, I jumped in on your point, but it's, it, it's um, a fascinating part of it. It's a fascinating part of it. You know, this is you know, the Itchio short that, that we never got to cover because I think it was already popular by the time we started Horror Bites. Um, you know, it, it deserved to have the backing of a publisher to get it made into a full game. And I, I'm really happy about that because this is one of those examples where you're like, yes, this deserves to grow. And we've talked about that before in so many episodes about, you know, it'd be great if this game or this game got made into something bigger when we're talking on Horror Bites. And this did, you know, this is one of those. And I think that it's a great example of um, allowing the project to grow naturally and logically, you know, as well. It feels like, you know, not like, oh shit, now I've got to make a game. It does feel like, no, this is the rest of it. The rest of the idea is all in here. And yeah, I mean, there's more I'll say about it, obviously, because, but I, I will let you get back to what you were saying. <laughs> well, all I was going to say is that, you know, I had not previously played the Itch.io smaller version of this game, but I can't imagine this is a great deviation from that original blueprint. And I think that's because they set the parameters of the world and the scope and the size of everything, but it feels like it utilizes its small scale to the best way possible in terms of you know, they really lean into the surreal aspect of the tapes and how things gradually become stranger in them. You start picking out elements of it more so and more so. And while the puzzles themselves are not necessarily like super challenging, I think it's more about 
making the player realize, oh, I actually have to pay more attention to what's being said and just background parts of the environment rather than being like, I don't know, logic puzzles or something along those lines, right? Which I think plays into that sort of the surreal facade of this children's show that really has this more sinister nature or uh, element, you know, supernatural element behind it, which I really like. It's kind of like if David Lynch had a children's program to a certain degree, um, which is a fantastic concept. <laughs> it really is. I mean, there's a whole thing out there about, you know, making kid-friendly stuff sinister. We've had that discussion before. You know, Five Nights at Freddy's is like the the kickoff point of that you know so you know even at dread xp you, know, you have uh, my friendly neighborhood you know, which is a very you know, sesame street goes rogue sort of vibe going on there so you know this is like a perfect sort of complement to it right down to you know like the visual style which is that sort of cruddy cg purposefully done so you know of the late 90s uh early 2000s era you know when you have a cheap budget sort of thing and your cg is um shall we say unsophisticated uh, <laughs> we all remember it you know from certain shows and things that you would see these things now they look ropey and dog shit but they hold a certain kind of nostalgia and that's what's perfect about this in that regard it, it does feel like it could easily have come from that era where you know you would dare to try something out in CG just to be different and to be ahead of the curve when really what you should have gone with is, you know, the more traditional animated vibe because it creates these things that are slightly unnerving, um, which is the basis, I think, for this whole game. You know, as much as there are sinister things going on, it's the fact that they are building it on the blocks of early CG is creepy as fuck. Yeah, this is here. Yeah, yeah, that's an understatement at this point. Yeah, and you know this is there, and yet there's a slightly modern nuance to it where they're able to sort of get a little bit of emotional depth to the character faces, you know, even with that, and help tell the story, if you will. So, yeah, it, it does the job fantastically, and. Like anything that channels something nostalgic or retro, the best thing you can do with it is to modernize it in a way that feels like it was always like that. Like that. And I think that, you know, Amanda the Adventurer has a lot of that going on. Yeah. And, you know, there is a story that is sort of explaining how this character is in this predicament and all these things. And mm. what I liked about that is that it's mostly things that you discover through exploring the environment more yeah. than the game actually requires of you, which I think is really interesting because I learned after I finished it that, oh, there's multiple endings, there's more mm. puzzles, then you'll probably uh, be able to experience the first run through. So there's an incentive to go back and yes. to play through different puzzles and experience more of it and unlock more of the story that I like being optional because of anything, it feels sort of in contrast, but at the same time, it feels like a nice compliment to the fact that the puzzles are regimented in an order, but it's more about, you know, how you go about answering things in this correct order. The more that you familiarize yourself with the ordering and whatnot, you unlock mm -hmm. more and more if you so, you know, choose to. And I'm a fan of that rather than sort of like, shoehorning in the story because then that might detract from the puzzles themselves and so 
you know, there is this depth to the world that I like you only learn from like exploring in the sense of a world like this, where it's so constricted of a world and it's such a small scale world that there's more detail there than you're expecting, Um, which was a nice treat when I went back, you know, to replay it and to try to unlock more puzzles. I was like, oh, I didn't read these on this noteboard earlier. I'm going to read these. And it gave me more context for what I was doing. Um, Not to say it fundamentally rewrote my understanding of things, but it was just nice to have a little more lore for this world that you're kind of just plopped into. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, um, I think something again that we've constantly gone over with smaller horror game experiences is the use of small spaces to tell a compelling story. Yeah, I think, yeah. and had that be successful. Yeah, I mean, Dave Szymanski's um, Iron Lung being made into a film yeah, is a very great example of that, you know, so that's exciting in itself. But we've gone through so many games on Horror Bites, especially, where you have this punchy sort of single environment thing yeah, and making it feel bigger than it is and... Yeah, this is a really small environment when you really think about it. You, know, you are literally just walking backwards and forwards in an attic and experiencing a tape. Um, I suppose the thing that really gets to you with this game in a good way is that you know during these edutainment sections, you know where you get to type in stuff and click on things like that. You know the idea is you're supposed to come up with the correct answer. But the tapes don't always let you. Yeah. Or, I mean, one of the first things you get is like, what's your favorite pie flavor? You know, like that. And, you know, there's all the spaces. Like, oh, what is that? You know, so type in whatever you like, because the answer Amanda will say is no, it's apples. You fuck. That's it. That's what you have. It. <laughs> Apple is the one. Well, and to be fair, I picked Apple first because that's the only good pie out there. But anyways, continue. Yeah, I mean, yeah, my, my daughter picked Apple as well first. There you but go. Like, the next time we tried pear and it was like, apples. It was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so like that. But um, one of the best examples of that is when they go on the picnic, you know, mm. and they find the dead fox, you yeah. know, and that whole, I'm not going to go deep into it because uh, people should experience it. Go, that whole thing, you know, it was like click on the thing that killed the fox like that. And it just blatantly just pushing you to pick stuff that is wrong. Mm-hmm. And then just going, <laughs> actually, it was this, you know, like, like that. And, uh, I loved it. <laughs> but that and the, the, the woolly going to the hospital thing. Yes. Just lovely little examples of just, shifting the where the story is going in a really obvious way it's like it's obvious something sinister has happened but the the cuts that happen you know try to sort of cover over that and i love that about it it is um smartly done i would say it's like yeah the constant thing of like oh you know of woolly worrying and like being concerned about we shouldn't do this, maybe we shouldn't do that, and the manager just saying, "Fuck off, we're doing this like that." <laughs> you know, effectively, in a more polite, kid-friendly way, of course. But yeah, it, it's um, it really gets to the unsettling vibe it, it's going for because it, it knows what it wants to do. It really does just sit there and go, "Yeah, it'd be obvious what's happened in, mm. in many ways," but. 
you still got a lot of figuring out to do if you're, if you're going to get out of this. You know, I like that. I mean, to get like the basic ending, I suppose, you know, the bad ending, if you will, mm-hmm. like that, just the doomy way that you get to that, you know, the way Amanda is very sad and just dejected and disappointed in you almost that you've not figured out what to do <laughs> is just, and then to get what happens is just like, kind of like the perfect ending. But, mm. it's, you know, in some ways I prefer that. But, yeah, it, it's a really well put together short horror experience. Absolutely. And, you know, it, I'm so happy that it, it has been made into this full fat game and it's doing really well as well. Yeah. As well. So I'm, I'm super pleased, you know, Dread XP affiliations aside, you know, I, I can look at it from the lens of, yeah, you know, first experiencing it before that was even in their possession, uh, sure. and be and root for the developer for for making that. Well, it's the type of thing that you know it really does seem like the best type of success story that could come out of a horror bites, right? Because as you said, it sounds like the base of this experience we would have covered if it had came out, you know, within the realm of when we started horror bites, or if, you know, we'd known about it at that point. But it's the type of thing that it's like, that's what you want to see flourish from an idea that pops off on itch.io and gains traction. You want to see a publisher approach those developers and be like, hey, we'll, you know, we'll help you publish this game if you make it this a full-fledged experience. Even if it's only an hour in length or two hours at length at the most, we want to see this flourish and see that creativity really, you know, not only find the backing, but also the audience that comes with having a publisher. So yeah, you know, uh, Dread XP affiliation aside, I mean, I would want this for any number of horror bites that we've talked about previously that we've enjoyed so much that we've seen promise in. And you just hope that, you know, the more publishers pop up around like Dread XP and whatnot that are willing to back these spurts of creativity or these, yeah. you know, uh, semblances of creativity from these people that it's like, yeah, could see this flourishing in a way that it deserves to, that they would, the developers themselves would want it to initially. Um, so yeah, yeah, in that regard, I mean, yeah, this was something that came on my radar very late, but I think in terms of that, you know, it's a tremendous success for what was, uh, delivered. Yeah. And, you know, I think again, it, it, it may sound like paid promotion here, but it's such a good hit rate of what Dread XP is getting published, you know, Think of Mirrors Forge, think of the Mortuary Assistant, another uh, huge success in its own right. You know, stuff like that. It is, that's the core of what's happening there is an understanding of the genre of horror and finding what, not just what is, could be popular, but what really works, what makes horror fans tick in terms of games. And that's really remarkable because trends are one thing, you know, but to go and do such a varied sort of catalogue and, and believe in that, I think is more important than trying to make 20 backrooms games. You know, that's, so, yeah. Well, if I say anything more than that, people will start crying shill. So I think I'm going to move on because that was perfectly put. Um, but you are going to introduce our uh, penultimate game, which uh, you put me on to. And I was very happy you did because I just oh. got to finish it. 
uh, a few hours before we actually got to uh, record this one. So our second to last title for the month is going to be Varney Lake, developed by LCB Game Studio and published by Chorus Worldwide Games. And Varney Lake is a visual novel gorgeously illustrated with pixel graphics that has choose-your-own-adventure elements as well as a retro text-based puzzle-solving system Mm -hmm. to it. Uh, Notably, it's the second entry in a pixel pulp collection of interactive adventures with a similar structure to Mothman 1966, but comprising of a completely new adventure. Mm -hmm. Um, In this, it's following three friends during the summer of 1954, and Varney Lake documents the trio's evolving friendship, games they play to pass the time, and discoveries made exploring Varney Lake itself. And by discoveries, I mean they find a vampire. Yeah. Um, so, Neil, you were the one that put me onto this, and you actually reviewed this. So mm-hmm. I would love for you to tell the listeners and myself how this builds upon sort of Mothman uh, from either a narrative standpoint, from a gameplay standpoint. Um, how does Varney Lake sort of carve its own identity within the uh, pixel pulp pantheon, if you will? Yeah, so um, eager listeners will remember that. In the end of year stuff from last year, I did include Mothman up in the my mentions because it was just so standout unique. Yeah, you know, I will fully commend uh, PlayStation Universe uh, editor in chief uh, John Paul Jones with turning me on to the game in the first place because you know, he knows what I like. He'll he'll literally go look at this. This looks like your shit, and the amount of times he's been right that is amazing. So, you know, um, games like Virginia, you know, he, he was the first one to go, look at that, play it. That's it. And he was right. So that was great. So I was beyond excited to have another one. Um, but then when I learned that this was, you know, a vampire story, that was even better because, you know, I love vampire stories. You know, as I've documented it on Dread XP in an article this last week and this, whole talk is going to sound like a shill because it'll be the third fucking time in a week that I'm going to go praising this game to the hilt. Um, but it's just, it's because I love it. You know, I love what it's doing. Um, beyond this story that of a vampire, what have we got? So it's a very traditional pulp story of three kids having a, an innocent summer. So you will, you know, that they have these dreams and ambitions, you know, the one girl in the group is not really there all the time. She's just there for the summer. She's the cousin of one of the guy, the kid called Doug, who's a little nerdy guy. And then Jimmy, his friend, you know, has a crush on her and uh, Chris, this girl called Christine. And, you know, it's reciprocated somewhat, but she has a boyfriend back home and it's all very awkward and teenage and sweet and like that. And, you know, circumstances, push them to end up in this abandoned building where they find a vampire basically um, hiding in this building, light pouring in through the gaps in this broken old building and they you know, help it out by blocking the windows, covering everything up and the vampire shows gratitude, tells them to meet him at a certain spot for them to go and um, find something later which they do so before that happens though you get a flash forward to 
the future. Uh, the future and the past here are still all in the past. The childhood section takes place in the summer of 1954, and the adult section take place in 1981. And so there's a recollection from 1981 of what the events of that summer were. And, you know, it's very, you know, without even playing the game and you've seen a few bits and bobs, you kind of get the gist of what may have happened. You know, someone's missing. Why were they missing? How did this happen? Like that. Where does the vampire come into this? Now, what the game does really well as a story is leave a great shred of doubt about what could have happened. I mean, the obvious answer is they met a vampire. That's clearly what happened. Like that. But the vampire is the perfect kind of vampire. He's both pathetic and awe-inspiring. You know, he's just this magical thing they've discovered. You know, it's like they're frightened of him, but they're also intrigued by him. And, you know, as in the way that kids can be, of even the most tragic of figures. You know, it's like there's, there's a coolness to him that, that they are absolutely enchanted by. And, you know, to the point that there are jokes, there are, you know, stories told and things like that. And it all sort of winds up telling the story of this game and does so, you know, the thing that has to be said about these games, you know, so far with this and Mothman is that an actual, you know, writer, author, you know, is behind this is Nico Sarayan Taras. Sorry if I put his name there, Nico. But, yeah, he's got love for the sort of pulp novel and it bleeds through in everything in, in these games. But more so here, you know, the thing that really stuck with me with this game was it had that Stephen King vibe, you know, that it vibe, you know, and big losers you know, club energy. Yeah. You know, I point out in my Dread XP article, you know, TM writes The Last Vampire, which is this great vampire novel about how unsexy and unromantic the whole vampire thing is and how much of a curse it really is and how it's just another form of old age when you get down to it and you know there's a little bit of that in here you know that's the book that made me appreciate vampire stories beyond the obvious ones you know and uh see as the disease it is you know like when i was saying earlier about how you know it's a tragic figure that would be pathetic to most eyes, but has this sort of dynamism and this to it that um, you can see how kids would not see one side of that and be enthralled by it, but also kind of understand the danger of it. And so that that was a really great connecting point for me, you know, as a thing. You know, and the other thing to point out this game is again a very small team making this game, these games. And the artist here is uh, Fernando Martinez Rupal, who did the art for the one. And it's all based on this, you know, early computer text adventure sort of style thing where the graphics are very simple color palettes, very, you know, that. But they're done in such a way that is so remarkable. You know, we were talking earlier, we were talking earlier about how, you know, weaponizing nostalgia and making, making something seem like it's, retro but also it is modern because i don't think you'd get the strength you do here 
without the appreciation for the art form and the understanding for where it has been. You know, there are just shots in this game, you know, because there's a lot of like one panel images. Sometimes there's movement, sometimes there's not. And it's just beautiful. And unironically saying this, you know, there, there are shots in this that would be great on, to hang on a wall for someone like me. Yeah, I just, yeah, I think I included one of them in my review on PlayStation Universe, where it's just the image of some, of an older Jimmy walking in the rain in, in 1981, you know, alongside a van with a figure in the background just sort of coming up, you know, following him. And it's just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful as games go. Now, gameplay is very simple. You know, there's a lot of text choice. There are these mini games just like they were with uh, Mothman. One of them involves card games again, you know, which is st- did make me laugh. That it's like, oh, we're doing card games again. <laughs> they make them really compelling twists on card games. Yeah, the the version of Solitaire that these kids come up with, and then the story logic behind that just made me get. You can't be mad at that, you know. It's like not like they just said, no. Well, it actually, this whole story is just a front to have a card game in there. You know, it, it's it feels integral, you know, like that, and it kind of just fills into the wider identity of what these games are doing, you know, but there are also other stuff. You know, there's also other little mini games in there that just add to that, you know, and it just makes for a really fascinating little adventure that, you know, takes no more than two hours really to get through. Well, if it didn't have that spin on it, that makes it so integral to characters and further speak to them and their characteristics, It might feel like padding, but that was the thing that stood out to me was the fact that it is integral to this group and a representation of, you know, Doug's personality. The fact that these kids are passing the time basically with these types of games and whatnot. And, you know, at first I was kind of like, am I really about to sit here and play solitaire? And then, of course, (laughs) it like throws that spin in there where I was like, oh, you know, that's what me and my friends would have been doing instead of playing sort of like a prescribed game of some sort. We would make it our own with some kind of crazy yeah. rules. Not saying they would have been as logically constructed as, you know, any of the games that Doug <laughs> came up with. Um, but it was the type of thing where it was like, I relate to that on a nostalgia level. You know, yes. obviously was born far after 1954 or whatnot. <laughs> but, you know, I think that that's the element of this game that stood out to me the most was that it captures the essence of nostalgia in a way that everybody can relate to no matter Mm. what era they're from in that it focuses on friendship, the hardships of kids in growing up in that adolescence that, you know, is not limited to a specific uh, era, right? The fact that, Oh, I have a crush on this person. They already have a boyfriend. That's something that's going to be, you know, until the earth implodes will be a narrative between friend groups and whatnot. Things such as, you know, how you see a friendship with one person, how that grows and evolves between, uh, you know, Doug and Jimmy. That's, of course, going to be something that will always be integral to friend groups and whatnot. The dynamics of those to varying extremes, you know, hopefully we won't encounter a vampire, but it is the type of thing that it tackles friendship in a way that feels very genuine and doesn't Mm -hmm. feel as grandiose as finding a vampire or something like that. You know, it's avoiding the bully, right? The town bully that you ripped off from playing dice or something like that. The person that you looked at the wrong way that you're not supposed to, or this or that. Um, There is a very genuine quality. And again, taking it back to my comparison to like Stephen King's The Loser 
club, right? This group of outcasts that find solace in the fact that they were lucky enough to find two other people that they can get along with and that they mm. can, you know, hatch these harebrained schemes that they themselves know are probably not realistic, but it gives their group drive for the summer. The fact they want to save up and buy a movie theater and, you know, it might be 1954, but they have only, you know, amassed a hundred dollars over the course of a summer or something like that. Not up on 1954 real estate. I'm pretty sure you couldn't (laughs) buy a movie theater for a hundred dollars, but it it must be in some pretty shit state. (laughs) (laughs) But it is the type of thing that, you know, it taps into childhood nostalgia or, you know, adults nostalgia for their childhoods where you mm-hmm. had these, you know, illusions of grandeur of what you were going to be able to do with your friends and this and that, that gave you a drive for a short period of time that I found to be very endearing. And then, as you said, you know, this game in terms of the graphical style and the gameplay style that it tackles. Yeah. I found this to be the best example of utilizing that pixelated graphical style because it takes old world tech and it tells a story with a modern directorial gaze, if you will, Yes, which I found to be the most compelling aspect of this. The fact that it uses this outdated graphical style, but it's showcasing a story at opportune moments, much like a filmmaker would. And that's what allows the narrative and whatnot to come through in a way that, you know, not to take shots at uh, some of the, you know, text-based adventures that we've played for Horror Bites, but it is the type of thing where when you have the resources and you have somebody that's familiar with storytelling, mm. that's an artist that's not particularly – they might not be you know super well-versed in horror. They might not you know be from the film side of things, but they understand how to tell a story. Yeah. And that, I think, is the aspect of what allows Varney Lake to really you know tell maybe what is on some level a familiar story, but tell it in a way that is heightened by the art style. Um, And the fact that it does feel like despite the limitations of this sort of choose your own adventure tech space, you feel like you are getting the best glimpse that everything is happening from the perspective of as everything is happening. Um, That was just, I mean, from scene to scene, it kept me going. I played it in two sittings. Um, It was the type of thing where it made me instantly want to go back and play uh, Mothman 1966, which I still have yet to play. But if anything, I also have to compliment them for connecting Mothman to Varney Lake, mm. but doing so in a way that doesn't feel alienating. That could be something that could be very easy to kind of like fuck up, right? The fact mm. that you're going to include a connection, you're going to include details that are going to mean more to somebody like yourself that's played Mothman. But for me, who hasn't played it yet, I could be like, well, this is kind of annoying. I don't know what the connection is or this or that. But I found that Varney Lake did a good enough job of connecting those dots to the degree that I'm more intrigued about Mothman mm. rather than being annoyed that like, oh, well, I'm only getting half of the story because I didn't feel like that by the end of it. No. I mean, and you know, I prefer this of the two just because what it's doing story-wise is very much up my avenue. Again, going back to the article I did on XP for the last week, it, it explains pretty much what I'm talking about. You know, I go into a very uh, long detailed thing about the, my history with certain books and how they shaped a lot of my horror loves before film ever did, you know, like that. So I fell in love with the idea that vampirism was a disease and had a melancholy tragedy to it. And so anything after that that did that, I was like, well, brilliant like that. 
and that plus you know the, the formative experience of Stephen King's It, you know, reading a book about thirteen year olds when you're thirteen, uh, it, it makes perfect sense. So, yeah, I was so into the ideas going on here, and it just you know, it made me sad for nostalgia, you know, for having memories like this and just bit about my own childhood and being. Like, it's like fucking hell. I'm old, sort of thing. You know, it's like to literally look at this and go, there are actual decades between you and this experience already, and it's like that. And when you were younger, you were experiencing them whilst experiencing them in books and movies and whatever like that. And so it felt fresher. But then to come back to it and just kind of get this duality of, oh, you and the stuff you're experiencing are both disconnected from that now and, and you are more affected by it because you are suddenly like oh yeah I, I am almost being dragged under by you know by time you know getting further away from the surface of that memory and it, it's probably the most haunting thing you can have when you get to a certain age i think where you just get so far from your childhood <laughs> you're like oh fuck <laughs> like that I'm, <laughs> I am not going anywhere near in that direction no matter what I try am I it's like, <laughs> it's, uh, so you're saying I have something to look forward to over the next decade um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah but to Good be fair it. it must be nice to on some level have you know media whether it be movies film TV mm. games books that are able to capture that right mm. and to do it in a way that doesn't feel like it's just either i don't know pearl clutching or just trying to grab at something that's slipping through your fingers when they're able to capture you know characters and the emotional connection of those characters that makes it feel like it is a very natural sort of revisiting of things rather than this kind of just like falsated sense of you know oh well it was great back in the day but it's more than that it's more about you know the elements that characters you know, evoke that you yourself yes. can compare uh, yourself to, or at least relate to that. I would have to imagine. I mean, I can't imagine uh, even these <laughs> days, you know, I have that with my buddies from uh, where they should rename this episode, the nostalgia cast, uh, you know, <laughs> talking with my buddies about like, Oh, stuff that happened in high school or talking to my college friends about something that happened in college. It's like, I'm already having those experiences. Hmm. And so to play something like Varney Lake and to see it, resemble certain instances of my own childhood at, you know, 31 now. Uh, it's the type of thing that uh, I think made me be more invested in a text-based adventure than I was anticipating. Even though you've yeah. done, you've gone to great pains over the last year to make me more invested in trying out text <laughs> adventures. Um, it's well, the yeah. type of thing where I think, uh, you know, those types of games really benefit from the ability of tapping into elements such as that. Yeah. I think, that's been a big part of it for me in the last year. So there's been a back and forth with this, the, this studio and stuff on Horror Whites where we are, I'm just going, looking at it and going, the gist of what is in there is something I love, which seems odd because while I like some of the greater examples out there of that style, I, I didn't connect with them in the same way, but when you get these more personal takes and you get these little slices that are really, I think it's the ones that understand that to be a visual novel, you kind of have to write like a novel. 
like that. And this is a great example of when we were talking about some of the best examples we had on Horror Bites last year. They were the ones that understood how to write those adventures like a novel. You know, they may not have the visual style, they may not have visuals at all, really, in some cases, and yet they would do something that would ignite the imagination, which is what books do really well. And all that really all you're doing is getting this minute amount of choice that takes it away from just being a book, really. And to be fair, some books have that, let's be honest. So it isn't that far removed. But it does just give me something. And again, even that is nostalgia. Just the idea of reading books like I used to, where I would read books fervently and wouldn't feel like starting a book that was going to be more than 400 pages would be an ordeal that I'd have to, you know, read a book in my bath time. Maybe that's it for the next month if I was had any chance of it or do it audiobook style. So yeah, even that just feels part of this whole melancholy haunting, you know. So it's, I, I'd like to say it was a shame, but, you know, the fact that I'm talking so positively about it means it can't be bad you know, as an experience because... I like it, you know, I like to, to feel that, you know, I'm a very upbeat person mostly, but, you know, I, I still kind of have a thing for downbeat shit. And, um, even if that's personally downbeat, you know, it, it's, um, it, I think that's the stuff that makes you feel more alive, you know, it's like, you know, you don't have to throw yourself out of a fucking plane to, to feel alive. You know, sometimes it's just this minute stuff where you can just go. Yeah, I feel the passage of time, but I can still get a taste of what that was without buying a Ferrari and growing my hair out and dyeing it or anything, you know. Couldn't, probably couldn't afford to do either at the minute, but still. So. <laughs> oh, man. Well, if, uh, you know, you're able to get that out of playing Varney Lake, I think that's a much better uh, use of your time and also probably uh, your bank account and uh, yes. wife will be thanking you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Um, but for the final game of the month, um, I'm going to, not that you haven't done a great deal of, uh, talking for the last game, but as I was, uh, not able to make time for it this month, unfortunately, uh, I will leave it to you to introduce our final game of the month. That being dead Island two. Yes. Which will be a lot less depressing. I promise. Um, (laughs) slightly more upbeat of an experience, I'm sure. Yeah. For a game, you know, again, a game where I've gone done an article about how joyous I find the disgusting things in it. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, you're listening to a game, a podcast about horror games. So fucking hell. Yeah. So yes, Dead Island 2 is finally a thing. It actually exists in the world as a game, much like other great examples in the genre, like, um, Duke Nukem Forever and uh aliens colonial marines um but yeah thankfully it's not like those so (laughs) it's actually because you know it got rebooted effectively halfway through you know we had the studio studio behind spec ops the line was supposed to be doing this originally yeah and there was even a test build that went out and people actually got to play yeah um uh, ben shillabur hall who does playstation universe's um unchained podcast yeah, he got to play that you know, back when it was that original game before it got canned. Um, and it's you know, gone through all these different studios, different parent companies because of takeovers. 
and then handed to a studio to develop who's gone through all that shit as well. You know, like Dan Buster Studios, you know, used to be Free Radical, who themselves came out of the studio that, you know, at Rare that made likes of Perfect Dark and Goldeneye. You know, so they made Time Splitters, they made Goldeneye, they made Perfect Dark. Unfortunately, they made Haze. <laughs> and then everything kind of went south after that. But it's a real triumph for a studio like that, that they have survived constantly. You know, they helped out Crytek by making stuff like, you know, for the Crisis games. Um, they tried to salvage, um, the Homefront sequel. Um, they did fairly well. It just, it was a hard project to do. The best part of that game was there was a times, a playable version of Times Bits 2 at the time when you couldn't really get it. So, so, I've always been rooting for the studio to sort of make something that was good. And it did feel like this was going to be a poison chalice, you know, because a game that has been delayed and handed over multiple times to a studio that has just kind of got in a funk because of the things that have been handed it. It's so, so great to know that it was never the case. You know, that they, they have pretty much taken what was there in the original build of this and just gone yeah keep at it we are making a dead island game that very much feels like dead island did but clearly has taken notes on what has happened since so if anything it's the funny thing comes out of this is you know tech clan the team that made the original dead island have gone and made two whole other games in an entirely different zombie smashing franchise in dying light and the first one was like the perfect evolution of what Dead Island could have been. And love it. Dead Island, Dying Light 2 would be a bit more divisive and end up being a bit further from what that vision would be. <laughs> so I, in a lovely roundabout way, Dead Island 2 comes out and is like the perfect mix of what Dying Light began as and what Dead Island could have been if it wasn't such a buggy, shitty mess most of the time. So, you know, it's set in Los Angeles, L.A., uh, as it is effectively dubbed here. Uh, you know, so How fitting. You first, yeah, and Zombie you, you apocalypse first, or not. Yes, and, you know, the, the, the story does go to great lengths to point out the uh, satirical value of such a thing. Um. So you're probably thinking, well, where's the island aspect of this? If it's in Los Angeles, has it just been broken off the coast? No, it's more in the sense that it is like this virus is localized, you know, where the zombies are. So they've quarantined off the Los Angeles area. And so it is an island in you know that sense. So there you go. That's why it's a dead island. And... Yeah, I must say, originally I thought it would be about the earthquakes making it end up being an island, but yeah, either way, either way it works, so that's fine. So you play as one of these un- unbeknownst to you slayers, if you will, who get bitten, find out they're immune, and then also just happen to be really fucking good at killing zombies. Um, my personal experience only comes from the Irish uh, punk rocker Danny, who is wonderful, great character, great, great crack with the old uh, talk that she does. 
so you know that that was a, a good prism to view that for you. But you have the you know a guy who's a male stripper that's dressed as a firefighter. You have you, know, you have Pete Davison effectively and other characters like that, and you know it's very LA typed in many different ways, and I like that about it. As a game, it is very much Dead Island, you know, very melee focused, very much about smacking zombies up in a semi-open world thing. Um, the areas are big, but they are contained. So, you know, you are going loading screen to loading screen, depending on where you go. Um, so they've hit the perfect compromise, especially if you found Dying Light 2 to be a bit too open. You know, where it's like this huge map and you're doing all this stuff and you've got such verticality. This is very much a step back into the simpler times of what we once had, whilst being bigger and better than what we had with the original Dead Island or even Riptide. But, um, you know, it's a really cool recreation of LA in its different forms, you know, from the Beverly Hills and Bel Air area to, you know, downtown in Santa Monica. It's got some great atmosphere for it, you know, and to set most of it in the sunkissed daylight, you know, much like the original Dead Island did, is still a really smart move because it just makes it distinct. You know, so many horror games are going for what the fuck's that? I can't see anything, you know, as their go to for a design document. And this does very little of that, you know, there are moments of it, but it's really charts a fine line between you know ultra violence and being silly as fuck you know know, it's sincere when it wants to be without ever sort of tugging at the heartstrings or trying to tug at the heartstrings so it's like uh, it literally quite awkwardly goes down a couple of story beats that are exactly the same as Dying Light 2 and um, but Again, the irony is, ends up doing those storylines better. You know, it ends up um, making more of that in a game a gameplay sense. But um, so the king of this whole experience is that you have this degradation system called the flesh system, and uh, where depending on where you hit the zombies and how you hit the zombies or what with, um. It affects the body in a certain way, and that you know, it really gives it that proper special effects um, sort of glee to each encounter of a zombie, because you can almost see the Savini Nicotero sort of vibe in in what they're doing, where it's like they're very glad about creating this system. So you know, people can't you, see uh, it, but I have this masochistic smile on my face that you say that, <laughs> and so. Yeah, if you have like a corrosive agent, the skin will melt off them. If you slash certain zombies across the belly, like their entrails will be there. If you smack them hard with like a blunt force object across the hand, their hand will be like this mangled mess hanging off them or any limb, to be honest. Or like if you smack them in the jaw, their jaw will just be like hanging off like that. And, you know, in the beta of this game, when I talked about it, it, it was really impressive already, but the full game, man, it, some of the stuff it does is just like giddily gory stuff. It just makes me smile time and again. You know, sicko vibes full on. I'm telling you, I, I'm so into how disgusting this game gets and how happy it is in doing it. 
Well, I'll say, you know, the most recent zombie game I've played was Back for Blood, right? Mm. The, in terms of most recent zombie releases. And while return on investment with that game was definitely mixed, it was the type of thing where my biggest critique of it was that the feedback of combat was not nearly as satisfying as I felt it should have been. Mm. And that's not to say I was doing a one-to-one comparison with that and Left for Dead, but just in general, right? That has yeah. always been the aspect of zombie films that I've loved and that I know that you love. In that zombie films, zombie media, when you swing at a zombie, you want that body to you know explode or be damaged in a way that is so horrific that it gives you that oomph factor that you always yeah. want in a first-person experience or just a, a game that combat is the focus. And to hear that each combat and experience that you have in this game and knowing that, you know, there's going to be a great deal of it um, has the feedback that you want, whether it be melee, mm-hmm. whether it be ranged combat, whether it be just the sort of destructive nature of shooting a barrel and watching zombies explode. Having that feedback, I think, is really, really imperative to ensuring that this game is able to craft somewhat of a separate identity or at least semblance of a unique experience to other zombie games that have tried to tackle something similarly, right? Whether it be something like a Back for Blood, whether it be a Dying Light, right? I think in this day and age, when you make an open world zombie game, those are the types of features that you have to include. Granted, I can't speak to, I have not played the game, but that in and of itself is one of the selling points that I would want in a game that is attempting to compete in this realm of zombie first person Mm -hmm. combat games. Um, because that lack of feedback ends up making combat feel more like a chore because at the end of the day, a majority of the time, you're not really gaining anything from a lot of those little, uh, you know, I played the first uh, few hours of Dying Light. And mm-hmm. while I enjoyed it, I enjoyed looting and all of these things. I wanted m- even more feedback. I wanted to get that gratification from combat and from experimenting yeah. with combat rather than just killing something the quickest. I want to get some sick, fucked up animations that, you know, appease my sicko brain. Um, Mm -hmm. Those are the types of moments that I think allow a zombie game to really lean into a lane that I think is seldomly touched upon, you know, truth be told, uh, with a lot of these types of experiences. Yeah. Um, One of the other things that really makes combat sing as well is that there's a variety to it given by how environmental damage works. Now, your weapons, obviously, you can have environmental damage like you always did. So you can have electric weapons, flame weapons, acid weapons, whatever. But there's also aspects of that in the environment. So, you know, there are water barrels or tanks, you know, that you can just, you can literally pick up like little, uh, things of water and just pour them over an environment. Same with oil, same with the acid. And you can use that to sort of create on the fly traps and situations where you can, I saw a video recently online showing this where you do this mission in one of those Bellara apartments and, you know, there's all these zombies bashing on the glass outside this, like, um, sort of um, balcony top area of this swish house and you've got all this oil that you can just pour along. He pours it all along the edges of this room, sets it off at, like... You know, ignites it and blows it up. And then just as they get through from blowing all the glass up, you know, it sets off another chain reaction of other things that blow up. And 
it, they just get blown into chunks. And it, there's loads of great moments like that, you know, where you can just mess around with the environment. And I think it only gets better when you add other people and they just start adding their own ideas to things. You know, naturally that can go wrong if you've not communicated your idea properly. But still, just the constant cycle of like, oh, I see that in the environment. I could do this to that zombie and just having fun with it. I mean, it kind of takes the idea that Zombieland, you know, had of like making the idea of how best to kill a zombie is, have you got, you know, what's the best way you can do it? You know, let's make a competition of it. And I think it's the game that really nails it, you know, as, as an art form. It's like, how are you going to make the most disgusting, inventive zombie kill? And there's so many options and so opportunities. And I think, you know, while the game is very basic and simple in so many ways, I think that's to its credit. I think you could argue the same for something like um Breath of the Wild when, you know, it's like all oh, these things are very simple, but the tools that are there allow for experimentation that you've seen in countless videos and clips and whatever mad shit people will do within those confines because it offers that kind of freedom if you've got the brain to sort of go... Ah, I could do this, 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 and this. You know, I, I'm not saying it's on a par with what Breath of the Wild can do, but it still has a lot of that in it, where you, there is so many nutty things you could just do and, and say with that game. And I think that will be its long-lasting legacy. And the reason why, you know, it's not just great that they've salvaged a sequel that seemed like it was dead in the water. It's the fact they've made it into something that, is really bloody entertaining and like the best game in that series, you know, without a doubt. Not just because it doesn't fall apart after five seconds, but because, you know, it gets a cohesive vision across throughout the game in a way that the early games didn't and were very much uh, carried by the attitudes and atmosphere of that trailer, you know, for the original game that it never reached so yeah it's nice that we live in a world that there was a you know Techland went off and did what they wanted to do made a good fist of it made some great games out of it and now you know Downbuster get to go and uh, make Dead Island relevant again you know it's like I, I don't think it'll be on many people's end of year lists but for me probably will be because I it just it has scratched a very particular itch well i'll say how easy could it have been for this to be something like a duke nukem forever right it's like okay yeah the final product of duke nukem forever after all those years sure they released a final product and it worked at the end of the day should they have even bothered releasing it based on what Mm. they turned out sure they can say they had a product that worked but was it duke nukem did it actually live up to the hype granted what could live up to the hype of something like that but I think with something like this, and it sounds like you've been speaking to this, the fact of the matter is, is that this was a project that more or less thought was never going to be released. And while, you know, it might not be redefining these types of open world zombie games, it has leaned into an aspect of those games that, you know, at least somebody like myself has felt like they have not quite delivered on the promise of that combat that is as destructive, as creative, is able to tap into, you know, the zombie land comparison, I think is really a great one because it's tapping into that idea of like, 
survivors that are almost find surviving a zombie apocalypse to be mundane. So they're going to entertain themselves with yes. how fucked up they can dismember zombies and the like. And, you know, there is a great deal of fun, I think, to be had in that. And it sounds like Dead Island 2 has the mechanics that support something like that. Again, yeah. I would venture that, you know, it probably, from a narrative standpoint and whatnot, it's probably not all that uh, much of a derivative from what, you know, we've experienced previously. But the fact that it's able to take combat and to give it that oomph factor, and it sounds mm -hmm. like a majority of that is the identity of this game, that gives me great promise in wanting to check this out. And, you know, I don't think I'm going to uh, put it to you quite like I was going to originally, where it's like, should I get Dying Light 2 or get this? Because Dead Island 2, at least, sounds like it's leaning more into the camp of the type of zombie experience I would want mm. to play. And, and it's shorter, rebels. So. <laughs> it's and just, it's shorter uh, you said? Yeah, much yeah. shorter. <laughs> so, there you go. Yeah. So you, you can finish this in less than half the time yeah, and, and still do a fair bit of it. But um, I suppose it brings me on to one tiny final point I might mm. want to make there. I find it quite amusing in the arena of criticism that a game like this will get criticized for being simplistic and being a throwback uh, because it isn't made by certain companies. And yet we are you know, in the same sort of breath, you will get certain places then um, big up games that are far more simplistic in what they do and far more derivative, but get parts because they got like a big name behind them or a big budget behind them. Uh, and so that was for me a big factor in like scoring this high because I was like, well, if it was by a big company, people would be giving it nines and tens because it's like, oh yeah, it does that thing. It does everything we always wanted this to do like that. And it does. But yeah, because it is Dead Island and you know, it has so much baggage and I, you inherently, you can't help how people feel about these things. Um, you are looking at this and thinking, well, you know, it was going to be a disaster. So if I give it six out of 10, it's not that bad, is it? You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, six out of 10 isn't bad. Sure. Uh, it's unfortunately in the world of video game criticism, it is. So, but it, <laughs> which is a shame. It, it shouldn't be. So that ended up being my look into it, where I was like, yeah, okay, it's simple, but it, you know, it's so much better than it ever should have been, you know, like that. And sometimes you just have to look at a game and go, no, it's just entertaining. It does the job. And you can applaud that and give a, a good score to that. You don't have to take points off stuff because it doesn't change you or move you, you know, emotionally you know it's like a, a great game can be something that is dumb as fuck you know right and, you know i'm sure dan buster would take no you know hurt in that you know that they would accept that that's a valid sort of you know examination of this game it's fine you know we we allowed this in movies you know when we're talking about movie criticism that a movie could be big dumb and stupid and people fucking talking about it like the second coming of christ if it's by the right studio like that but at least in movies that we still have a subset of the audience will then go no we like this because it's big and dumb but it's cheap as fuck as well you know like horror is a great for that but we don't do that in games especially with horror games yeah so i i went into this very much thinking 
in the same vein as horror movies of its like, you know, where Return of the Living Dead or fucking whatever, you know, stuff like that, where it's like big daft zombie nonsense that's bloody and gory, you know, that's fine. And I love it and I will cherish it. And this is the kind of game that deserves that kind of praise. And I think it's doing well enough now to show that while people may not see it that way because of the way games get rated and reviewed, that 7 out of 10 games, as games media generally sees it, myself included, is not necessarily a bad thing and kind of needs to be skewed to be on a case-by-case basis. And I think this, you know, your 7 out of 10 experience in terms of, like, not being a moving emotional tour de force can still be great, you know. And, um, yeah, I, I think we need to kind of appreciate that more as a thing for the games in general. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more with that. It is the type of thing where, I don't know, setting expectations and what people are looking for, because, again, what you've been describing from a gameplay standpoint, I find to be that that is a more interesting aspect of this type of experience than what has been mm-hmm. previously offered, just based off of how you've been describing it. And it, I don't know, speak to the sort of, you know, still growing nature of games media or games consumption in general. Yeah. People have a tendency to look at everything and be like, well, if this doesn't go on the mountaintop, then it's not worth even mentioning or playing or, you know, giving my money to. And I think that, you know, the way in which we consume games and the conversation around that, and hopefully, you know, we're doing our small part in that, in that you can't look at every single game just because there's a $70 price tag on it, just because, you know, some experiences require 15 to 30 hours or something like that. You can't look at every single thing like this has to be the greatest thing that's ever been made, right? And there used to really be a sweet spot back in the day, I feel like, with those types of experience, those, I think they called them like mid-budget games, right? Mm. Games that really excelled at one aspect of their development, whether that be narrative, whether that be gameplay, whether that be, you know, multiplayer perhaps, and there needs to be more flexibility almost, I think, in the way that people consume media, such as something like a Dead Island 2. You know, not to say that it gets points on the board just for actually coming out and existing after it almost did, but the fact that it was able to come out of that and actually deliver in a meaningful way from a responsive, entertaining gameplay standpoint, I think that, you know, you've, I mean, you've sold me on that. But it's the type of thing where it's like there needs to be more flexibility in terms of what you're expecting from certain games. Based on what you've said, I mean, I don't go into anything that's open world and expect for the most part that it's going to deliver this this moving narrative that's going to make me rethink zombie media and all these things. It's like that's not what I'm looking for. And I guess maybe part of that is like – not to give myself too much credit, maturity, right? I'm going into it and I'm expecting something that's going to be very tactile, very entertaining on a hit by hit basis. And that's all I really want out of that experience. Mm. Um, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but I think that (laughs) when we're so inundated with open world and specifically zombie games that are like, okay, we're going to throw these hordes at you. But then the actual act of combat, you're kind of over after three hours because it's so unresponsive. It's so unsatisfying. Uh, I think about something like, um, what's the motorbike zombie game? 
Oh, Christ. Yeah. <laughs> the Sons of Anarchy zombie game. But anyways, um, it is the type of thing where it's like, oh, cool. I can kill a whole horde of zombies. Days gone. Sorry. Days yeah, gone. There you go. Uh, but it's the type of thing where it's like, I don't find that to be very entertaining just because I can kill a horde and it doesn't have the entertaining yeah. Uh, feedback. Yeah. And that is a great example of what I'm talking about because there is a game that is average as fuck in so many ways. It's flawed fundamentally. And yeah, it has good bits. But it's lifted up by a subset of rabid fans of a platform mm. that think that it must be the second coming of Christ because it came <laughs> out on that platform. Right. When it, when technically it's not any better than the last Dead Rising that came out on Xbox, you know, in mm. Dead Rising 3, you know, as an exclusive. So, yeah. And, you know, that's coming from someone who was absolutely up for the days gone being great you know because sony bend had done so much good i was so happy for them that they were making this game and i thought it kind of unfair that sony even allowed them to do it when the last of us had basically just ruined any chance of that doing any good business but yeah i think it showed that studio's uh, deficiencies as a, a major publisher and trying to meet that world um, that they were being thrust into. So yeah, that that is like the template, I think, for the kind of game you don't want to be, you know, in that regard. And, you know, I can play this and say, this is at least as good as that, you know, Without a shadow of a doubt, and in many ways better because it's shorter, punchier, more entertaining on a minute to minute basis. And yet people will give it shit scores or people, you know, players will be able to dismiss it because it wasn't made by a certain studio. It wasn't made as an exclusive. There, there, done like that. And that goes both ways in terms of positive and negative thinking, depending on who makes stuff. But it is annoying. Well, I don't have anything else to say other than I need to play Dead Island 2 ASAP. And I've decided I'm going to uh, prioritize that over Dying Light 2, given that I, for whatever reason, have been absolutely shit this year and the previous year at <laughs> Keeping Up With Zombie Games. Uh, I'm going to make time for Dead Island 2 because what little I played of the first one back in, my God, I think back in college, uh, yeah. I enjoyed. And just to hear that it's even more punchier combat, more satisfying combat doesn't hurt that it's not terribly long. I can fit that into my uh, my schedule. Uh, I will definitely be checking that out. But uh, yeah, you know, as always, I think we have a month that is seemingly growing more and more varied. Uh, this might be the most varied edition of it, the inventory yeah. that we've had so far, from puzzle games to base building and management to, you know, we have the uh, PSX style experiences that we love so much. We've got this big AAA title that we're rounding out the month with. And, uh, you know, I think that, that and we, you know, at this point of repeating this ad nauseum on the podcast, but that's the best part, I think, of the certain formats that we have, specifically like Horror Bites and Inventory, in that it pushes us out of our comfort zones a little bit. I mean, granted, something like Amanda the Adventurer was graciously gifted to me by uh, Dread XP, but I think that that's the type of thing where normally, you know, I wouldn't go out of my way to play that, but after playing this, I'm again yeah. going to open my horizons more to puzzle games and whatnot. Um, I think even something like Meet Your Maker, which unfortunately I couldn't get to work on PC, maybe I'll give it a go on console. It's the type of thing that, you know, the way that you've described it, I'm really interested in the idea of those map maker roots, but then having a more 
modernized spin on it, something mm. akin to like base management from like Phantom Pain that we mentioned and the like. Um, I think that that makes for a really natural evolution that pushes these perhaps outdated concepts, but yeah. makes them more palatable for the more modern audiences, but also modern tech and the sort of advancements that come with that. Um, but I guess before we sign off, we should do a bit of housekeeping. We should yes. probably let the people know about a slight change to not only safe room format, but also more specifically horror bites in that horror bites is becoming a weekly segment that is going to be dropping every Thursday of the week. So you guys are going to get the core safe room episode every Monday that will continue and be unchanged, but you guys will be getting horror bites every Thursday of the week. And it's important to note that horror bites, we're going to have a little flexibility here. It's going to be coming every week, but we feel that if we're going to be doing it every week, it opens us up to either continuing the format where Neil and I each bring, you know, a few bite-sized games to the table to chat about. At the same time, that will be interchanged with periodic developer interviews. Mm. Um, And we're incredibly excited to announce that this coming Thursday, we will be debuting you know, our weekly installment of Horror Bites, and it will feature an interview with the developers of 10 Dead Doves, which was a game that you and I covered the demo of for yeah. Horror Bites earlier last year, actually, not even mm-hmm. this year, last year. Um, and it was something that we were, you know, really positive of, and we were so fortunate to be able to have the developers on and the composer of the game to chat about. So that's going to be the future of what Safe Room release schedule looks like. Monday is going to still be unchanged, the core episodes. You'll have your milestone episodes, new releases. You will have, of course, the inventory. But on Thursdays of every week, there will be horror bites of either us covering bite-sized horror games or the occasional developer interview, uh, which is something that is a new endeavor for Safe Room. But we're really, really excited to uh, debut that. Yes, and absolutely. So we must bring up the point that if you are a developer of a small indie horror game, uh, you know, we are widening the net slightly here. So it doesn't mean that you have to be like uh, a 10, 15 minute experience to an hour experience, you know, a few hours, whatever. If you have that in the pipeline or you're trying to big something up that you want and you want to talk about it, uh, we are open to be interviewing you on our show for Thursdays in the foreseeable future. So, you know, get through with us uh, on the channels that Jay will indeed mention in the following segment. Absolutely. And, you know, as always, uh, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Safe Room. And for both fans and developers, if you feel that you want to reach out to us, whether it's to, you know, give us your feedback on an episode or a game we've covered or are going to cover, uh, you can feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod in addition for show updates, or you can shoot us an email at saferoompod at gmail.com. We also have a Discord channel, uh, Safe Room Podcast, where you know you can get together with either Neil, myself, or other fans of the genre to chat about horror. And we don't only talk about games over there, we also talk about movies and what we've been watching recently. Um, but yeah, man, as always, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Until the next time.